scary girl. Do you, you remember that old commercial? Good. What's that? Can you hear me now? Good. That closet behind you is open. What's the commercial you're talking about? Can you... It's that old... Uh, hmm, I can't. I really need you to go <laughs> close that closet door behind you. Oh. Shut up. <laughs> there are too many doors down here. And I didn't even, that was a closet. I had no idea that was there. That's actually the laundry room. Oh. Uh, that's where I would pee in the middle of the night when I didn't want to go upstairs and this was my bedroom. Is there a bathroom in there? No, there's a sink. <laughs> <laughs> that's Stephanie. That's Sarah. <laughs> And, and this, this is, is Dead Time Stories. Hey, guys. The show where we entertain you with different types of, you know, bowel movements. We talk about poop. Now we're talking about where you peed in the middle of the night in something that wasn't a toilet. Sure. Where else is this show going to take us? Brand new heights. I was going to say, your imagination is the limit, Sarah. My imagination. So the limit does not exist? Oh, wait. Not, mm. Yeah, that's the quote. But I'm not saying you don't have an imagination. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Why I was like, oh, wait, maybe that's not what I want to say. Whatever. We heard it. We got it on tape. She plans to kill me. She doesn't Stop. think I have an imagination. Told you. It's My all mom was going like, on the Netflix. If happens, they're going to be like, see, this is the kind of person she is. It's going to be like Michael Peterson all over again. What would my Netflix documentary be called? Well, it depends on how you die, obviously. Well, how are you going to kill me? I'm not, you <laughs> asshole. Can I make a request? <laughs> she's looking at me. She's not blinking. Now her eyebrows are raised. She's really angry. Now she's serious. Like, even the ears dropped. Like, the whole demeanor changed. She's going to have to blink eventually. Now she's looking at me sideways. Now she's smiling. Are your eyes watering yet? She shrugs. She doesn't know. Now she's Scotty resigned. Scotty doesn't know. <laughs> you blinked. I wasn't trying to not blink. I wasn't either. And then you said I wasn't blinking, and then it became a whole thing. What are you talking about this week, Sarah? <laughs> um, <clears throat> segue here. I told you that I I wanted to um to bring up something that I saw in an article today. Okay. Uh, on BuzzFeed, and I had also we've talked sort of about kind of doing segments or like a recurring theme for you guys, yeah, like yeah. something every week. Um, tell us what you think about this idea. We might bring to you every week a, a fact or a, a fecal fiction. You know, you never know. A different poop poop uh, fact or false fact. Might be a true, true thing about poop. Might be a fake thing about poop. Who knows? Is it fact or fecal fiction? You find out on the next episode of Dead Time Stories. stories. <laughs> um, so I read this article today that Talked about the uh, superintendent who was found pooping on the field yeah, we of the school. Yeah, we talked about a while back. We talked about them in episode five I'm about the fecal was, forger. Of um, and fun fact, he has resigned from his position, and he also is suing the police department for a million dollars for using his mugshot, saying that it's caused him like major harm and damage. And at the end of the article, it mentioned that he hopes that one day he can tell his side of the story. I would love to hear. What his is side your of side of the story? Tell it now. What are you waiting for? Like, what's the point? Like, 
everyone caught you pooping. They have video. They saw that it happened. Like, what? How are you going to brush it off and be you, like, why are you? I'm just like, why are you waiting to share your side of the story? He's like, I can't wait. Please stop waiting. We would love to know. We really need to know why you were doing this. And I mean, he, it's not that he's saying he didn't do it. Yeah. You know, he's definitely did it. So I uh, I read that article. And I just wanted to give you guys a fecal update on the uh, the mystery pooper. Well, he's not a mystery anymore. The superintendent pooper. It's working. It's just tiny. I know. I know. I just want to look at it for a second. Okay. Did you like my pooperintendent update? Update. Cool. Awesome. Bam. When Eric's not here, we second guess everything that we do. And we're back. Welcome back, Stephanie. Thanks. You ready to pick back up where we left off? Sure. Well, actually, that was really the end of my <laughs> my pooper intendant update. <laughs> I really want to know if he gets that million dollars. I feel like that's really um, we should. We you should know what it is? It's pretty gutsy of him to sue them for a million dollars. Is it? Mm-hmm. He's got bowels of steel. <laughs> Apparently not. Because no, he has to poop on the track. I, yeah. Who would have thought that you could mix the paranormal and the pooper normal? I was going <gasps> to say pooper normal, yeah. It's great minds. That's it's the episode like... of our next, that's the name of our next. Uh, pooper normal. Our next podcast. Yeah. Is that our new theme song? No, it's just the Unsolved Mysteries theme song with a fart in it. You think I would have recognized it? I know. I was thinking that too. It's just a little that stuck in my head. It's like, okay, whatever. It obviously didn't. You, I know you said you didn't watch it when you were little, but I'm like, obviously you didn't, because if you did, it would have haunted you, because it was terrifying when you were a kid. That theme song is so creepy. Because it is accompanied by, like, an unsolved mystery Well, like, story. that's just the story. I mean, that's just the thing. That's the music. And then you hear Robert Stack, and he's like, tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, this person died, and it was horrible. Nobody knows why. A reenactment. Let me show you a reenactment. Ah! Somebody was dying horribly. <laughs> this is a reenactment seen on Unsolved Mysteries. Every reenactment. Every now and then they give you update. This person's body was found. And you're like, oh, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> I'm stupid. Like I didn't watch it, so I hear that, and I'm like, that's an upbeat, happy tune. I gotta play it for you then, because I'm not doing it justice. It's it's terrifying. All right. Well, maybe at the end of this episode. <laughs> All right, um, let's dive right into it because you kind of told me what you were going to talk about this week, and I'm really excited to hear about it. So I'm just going to dive right on in, tell you about my story today. Uh, and my story today is uh, a location and a person. It's a, okay. it's, a, it's a two for one. You're welcome. Two for, I like it. Two for. It's a number two. <laughs> you would. <laughs> Uh, this is the Athens Lunatic Asylum, and then we'll be talking a little bit about a woman named Margaret Schilling. I'm already into it. Is it Athens, Georgia? No. Oh, okay. Athens, Ohio. Okay. So, it's now called The Ridges, um, but it was formerly called the Athens Lunatic Asylum. Uh, was a mental hospital operated in Athens, Ohio from 1874 until 1993. During its operation, the hospital provided services to a variety of patients, including Civil War vets, children, and violent criminals suffering from various mental disabilities. 
<laughs> what a, what a group. Okay. I mean, you know, all together. It, it is called place. the Athens Lunatic Asylum. Sure. It's covering all of them, you know. Um, so today, they're now called the Ridges, these buildings, and they're now part of Ohio University, and they house the Kennedy Museum of Art, uh, an auditorium, and many offices, classrooms, and storage facilities. And then there are also other parts of the building that are not being used, sure. which we'll get into. The former hospital is perhaps best known as the site of the infamous lobotomy procedure, which they did often, as well as various supposed paranormal sightings. Naturally. That's my music. Okay. That's what I think of. And that's what the Twilight Zone is. I was going to say, I think that's the Twilight Zone. Look at you. And that always scares me. I love the Twilight Zone. For many years, the hospital was Athens' largest employer. A large percentage of the work it took to maintain the faculty or facility was carried out by the patients. Um, so they're one of the first type of asylums to implement and it's called a type of thing and I didn't write it down but the um the type of treatment quote unquote of making the patients work around the hospital almost like that's their normal daily job as like part of their again quote treatment sure um so doctors and physicians believe this was not only therapeutic for the patients but it was also free labor right, for the course, hospital actually. as well um so by the end of the 1950s, however, the treatments that had been used for years used more altering drugs, and it made it difficult for patients to execute these jobs that they were given. Uh, the hospital was eventually decommissioned, and in a land swap between the Department of Mental Health and Ohio University, the hospital's property was deeded to Ohio University. Um, that's just a little bit of the backstory on, you know, where it started, and then now it's in the hands of Ohio. Big thing about the history um, of this hospital is that I think I mentioned that they do lobotomies. They did some awful things to their patients that nowadays would be considered like huge, huge abuse. Um, the history of the hospital documents some of the now discredited theories of the causes of mental illness, as well as the practice of harmful treatments such as lobotomy. Sure. So they all thought those were great. Obviously, now we know. Right, don't drilling a don't, hole in somebody's head yeah, isn't going to help. Don't take like a sewing needle and put it, you know, above their eyeball and just like jam it back there under their brain. Not, no one likes that. Not even the people who go to McCamey Manor want that. You they know. might say they want it. Right. That's true. Well, technically they don't want what they get anyway, right? He's like, you don't want this. That's what they say. Who knows? <sighs> Um, so the University Archives collection contains records unfolding information regarding some of the employees' background training. Some of them were fully trained, and some of them were not trained at all. Oh, naturally. Some of them lived on the grounds, and some did not. Uh, the most shocking information within the employee records is the evidence and the documentation of hydrotherapy, electroshock therapy, lobotomies, psychotropic drugs, uh, some of which have been discussed discredited today as extremely inhumane ways of treating a patient. Duh. So they were doing some not-so-nice things, people. The leading cause of ins insanity among the male patients, according to the annual report of 1876, was masturbation. Oh, of course. I knew that was going to be the answer. 
Yep. Obviously, they're they're crazy because they're masturbating. They were jerking it. Uh, the second most common cause of insanity, as recorded in that first annual report, was intemperance and dissipation, which I had to look it up because I didn't know what that meant. But intemperance is the habit of excessive drinking, and dissipation is the indulgence of sexual pleasure. Both of them are synonymous with each other to a certain degree. They can be used interchangeably. I wrote um, also colon, basically just for love and life. They got put in there. They wanted to drink and have sex. And people were like, whoa, that makes you crazy. Crazy. Uh, In the hospital's first three years of operation, 81 men and one woman were diagnosed as having their insanity caused by masturbation. I want to read her diary. Same. I want to know what she was doing. I'll hand you mine. I'm just like, (laughs) give you an idea. If she, because she's the first woman in there for masturbation. More, you know, follow. But I'm just like, what was she doing to be the first one? I would like to know. I could tell you. I mean, we know what she was doing, but I mean, like, at what ferocity (laughs) that it made people put her in the asylum? Example. It's not that kind of podcast. Uh, 56 men and one woman were diagnosed as having their insanity caused by intemperance and dissipation during that same period of time. Naturally. Um, For the female patients hospitalized during these first three years of the asylum's operation, the three leading causes of insanity are recorded as puriparal condition, which is also known as postpartum depression, Mm. change of life, which is also known as menopause, and menstrual derangements which I'm sure we all know just it was just their time of the month and someone yeah, pissed them off. So all regular things. Uh, you had about a hundred and something women hospitalized for that. The asylum quickly began to fill with the homeless, the elderly, and those who had become a financial burden on their families. It wasn't uncommon for people to be admitted for masturbation, rebelliousness, or even being a bad housewife. Regardless of the reason for the admittance, by the 1950s... You didn't wash the dishes? Girl, you crazy. You crapping you in that fucking asylum, girl. You know where you go in? Athens. Uh, might as well have been Mary Gerard in the Philadelphia That's hospital. what I was just thinking. Same. Uh, but regardless of the reason for the admittance, by the 1950s, the hospital had swelled to nearly 2,000 patients, which is over three times its capacity. Its capacity was like 550. Mm-hmm. The hospital finally closed its doors in 1993, having donated much of the property again to Ohio University, who had already begun to renovate some of the buildings. Almost as soon as the old portions of the asylum reopened, which later became known as the Ridges, students began to experience paranormal activity. This is where we get into the ghosts. Uh, They've heard disembodied screams would ring through the empty halls in the middle of the night. Uh, Mysterious figures would walk the former grounds of the demolished tuberculosis ward only to disappear into thin air. And electronics would seem to go on the fritz, causing lights to flicker and phones to fail. Now we're going to get into Margaret Schilling. I hope you didn't forget about her. Who? Mm, I know. Margaret. So one of the most popular ghost entities is that of Margaret Schilling. Ghost titties? Is that what she said? Ghost entities? Ghosts, entities, ghosts, slash, ghosts, entities, titties, ghosts, and titties, ghosts, ghosts, titties, titties, ghosts, and titties. So now we've got something else to go with our ghost dicks. Oh, yeah, ghost titties. Ghost titties. Anyway, tell me about them ghost titties. Oh, these ghost titties are no longer with us. Oh, no. 
Um, she's what led me to the story of this place in the first place. Uh, Margaret Schilling was not a particularly troubled patient of the asylum, so she was allowed a good amount of freedom, and she could spend her days wandering the grounds and even going to town on her own from time to time. On the night, got her in there in the first place, isn't it? Going to town on her own? No, she was. She was a little disturbed, like she was a little mentally ill, but she wasn't like crazy mentally ill. She was just like, yeah, special. On the night of December 1st, 1979, she went missing. Uh, When Margaret didn't return, a search party was organized at the hospital, but days of searching turned up no trace of the missing patient. On January 12th, 1980, uh, 42 days later, a maintenance man found her lifeless body in the abandoned top floor of Ward N20. This ward used to house the sick and infectious patients, but had been closed down for years, which is apparently why it missed the sweep from the search party originally. Mm. Margaret was found inside a locked room, lying on the floor, naked, with her clothes neatly folded beside her body. The official cause of death was heart failure, though the reason why is still unknown. One legend says she was playing hide-and-seek with the office staff when they got distracted and stopped looking for her. Uh, Another tale states that she was also a deaf mute, so she was unable to call for help after locking herself in the room, although there's nothing to corroborate that. Uh, None of these, however, give the explanation as to why she would lie down in such an orderly fashion, taking the time to disrobe and neatly fold the clothes beside her body. Much to the uh, maintenance man and the rest of the discoverer's horror, Margaret's body was in such a bad state of decomposition that her body fluids had soaked into the concrete, creating a permanent stain. To this day, the shape of Margaret's body can be seen on the concrete floor, even after multiple attempts to clean the stain. It's been described as more of a photograph negative than like an outright stain in the sense of as her body decomposed, the windows in the room caused sunlight to pass over the fluids over and over again, developing like a photograph of sorts into the concrete beneath her. Nowadays, people report seeing a woman looking down on them from the windows of the room where Margaret was found, hearing disembodied voices in that ward, and also the sound of a door handle rattling. In other wings of the hospital, people have experienced full body apparitions, as well as other disembodied voices and even phantom writings on the walls. People report seeing things written such as, I'm not crazy. Margaret is the most widely known and seemingly most active, but she's certainly not the only spirit haunting the asylum, and she's certainly not the only patient to have died on the grounds. There's a cemetery behind the hospital that holds the graves of approximately 1,900 patients who perished and didn't have family members to claim their body. Damn. That's another place that's supposed to have a lot of activity as well as the cemetery. So today the buildings are used by the university, though the wing that houses Margaret's lasting stain is closed off to the public. You really can't get to it. And the cemetery is still there? And the cemetery is still there. Within the uh, more recent years, they went through and tried to name as many of the bodies as they kind of could. But there's still a lot of them that are just marked with markers that have a number on them. Mm. And yeah, her stain is right there. It is straight up like the outline of a woman. Uh, You see the head. You see down to like the elbows. You see the entire torso basically down to like the knees maybe a little further with the calves damn and it's still there 
and I, I didn't bring my computer or my laptop to show it to you, but it's fucking creepy. And that's what led me to that story of Margaret Schilling is her corpse stain that to this well, day. I have is my laptop still... right here, so I'm going to look it up right now. Mary. Margaret. I'm oh, sorry. Margaret. S C H I L L I N G. You can search that up and it pulls her up first. There's also an actress named Margaret Schilling, but this isn't her. Damn. Yep. That's stain, you guys. That is a body. That is a person's body. Mm-hmm. And it's been there since 1980. Well, technically 1979 when she died. That's not like crazy long ago. But no. still, that's fucking crazy. Damn. So that's the story of the Ridges, formerly called the Athens Lunatic Asylum in Athens, Ohio. Well, shit. That's my ghost story, y'all. Before we get into our next story, here's a little quick promo from our buddies over at Southern Spirits Podcast. Take a listen. Hey, y'all. I'm Leah Lawrence. I'm her husband, Mitch Lawrence. And we host the Southern Spirits Podcast. Each week, we'll sip on a Southern brewed craft beer or wine and toss back a Southern distilled liquor, and I'll let y'all know how I feel about them with a review. And after we are good and tipsy, I'll bust out a couple of strange, spooky tales from the American South. We are all about true crimes, mysteries, paranormal activity, and cryptozoology. Basically, if it's Southern and boozy, we'll drink it. And if it's Southern and weird, we'll talk about it. So join us as we drink our way through the folklore of the South. Find the Southern Spirits Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Bye, y'all. That's pretty good. You know, tell me about your ghost story? Because um, from what you told me yesterday, it's pretty crazy. And I'm really so, excited. Um, okay. So, yeah, it's not really a ghost story. Um, depending on where you look it up, the most common thing that it's called is uh, the disappearance of Gary Mathias. But uh, one article referred to it as the American Ditlov Pass incident, Ooh. which is what first drew my attention to it. So I was talking to somebody at work about our podcast, and... <laughs> I was talking about Ditloff Pass, and they were like, that reminds me of this thing that I heard about, and they started telling me about it, and I Googled it, and when I found it, one of the first articles that came up, um, well, it's not really an article, is a Reddit page, uh, and it says, the American Ditloff Pass incident, five young men abandon a warm, safe car and disappear into the night. <gasps> so, what I'm going to read to you is actually the original article from 1978, when they first went missing, Okay. Okay. And then any questions you have, I will probably have some follow-up information from other articles. But this is the original article from when they went missing in 1978. And it says, Five Boys Who Never Came Back. Um, there are parts in this where I'll, like, I'd like to point out that, the, that this was written in 1978. So there's some words that they use that we don't necessarily oh. use these days. Okay. Um, so I would like to point that out. <laughs> Disclaimer. But here we go. There was a half moon that night, a winter moon in a cloudless sky. Up in the mountains above the Feather River, the snow drifts sometimes rose to 15 feet. You need a coat, Ted Ware's grandmother had said, watching him go. Oh, Grandma, I won't need a coat, Ware had said. Not tonight. Two hours before midnight, last February 24th, when the basketball game ended at the California State University at Chico, five young men from the flatlands, 50 miles south, climbed into a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego, and drove out of the parking lot. 
They were fans of the visiting team, which had won. They stopped three blocks away at Bear's Market, mildly annoying the clerk who was trying to close up, and bought one Hostess Cherry Pie, one Langdendorf Lemon Pie, one Snickers Bar, one Marathon Bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. Then they walked out of the store, got back in their car, drove south out of Chico, and disappeared. Ted Weir's grandmother woke up afraid at five the next morning. She cannot say what woke her up, except that maybe the Lord decided it was time to end her one last night of solid sleep. Ted's bed was empty. The house was still, and it was not quite light, and this is how the horror began, as it often does. No crash, no wailing, just a dim morning chill in a small house on what ought to be an ordinary day. Imogene Ware got on the phone and called Bill Sterling's mother as fast as she could. Juanita Sterling had been up since 2 a.m. Bill didn't come home either, she said. Mrs. Sterling had already called Jack's Madruga's mother. Jack also had not come home. Mrs. Ware called Jackie Hewitt's mother, and Mrs. Ware's daughter-in-law walked down the street to talk to Gary Mathias' stepfather. All five friends had vanished. At 8 that evening, Mrs. Madruga called the police. The boys had never done such a thing before. They were men, really, not boys. Hewitt was the youngest at 24, and Ware was 32, but their families called them boys, our boys. They all lived at home. Three of the five had been diagnosed retarded. Madruga, oh. although undiagnosed, according to his mother, was generally thought of as slow, and Matthias was under drug treatment for schizophrenia, a psychotic depression that first appeared five years ago and that his doctor says had not resurfaced for the past two years. They were supposed to play a basketball game of their own on February 25th, part of a tournament, with a free week in Los Angeles if they won. Their clothes had been laid out the evening of the 24th before they left for Chico. Each had a beige t-shirt, the words Gateway Gators emblazoned across the chest, from the Yuba City Vocational Rehabilitation Center for the handicapped where they all played basketball. Ware had asked his mother to wash his new white high-top sneakers for the tournament. He had scuffed them while trying them out. Matthias had just driven, had just about driven his mother crazy with the game. We've got a big game on Saturday, Matthias kept saying. Don't let me oversleep. Saturday came and went with no word. Oh. The police began to take interest. On Tuesday, February 28th, they found Madruga's Mercury. And from that day on, nothing they found, nothing anybody told them, seemed to make any sense. The car was 70 miles from Chico on a deserted and rut-ravaged mountain, uh, excuse me, on a deserted and rut-ravaged mountain road. It had stopped at the snow line, and although its tires had apparently spun, the car was not really stuck. Five men easily could have pushed it free. The gas tank was a quarter full. Four maps, including one of California, lay neatly folded in the glove compartment. The keys were gone, but when police hot-wired the car, the engine started immediately. Both seats were littered with the wrappers of the food they bought at Bears. Everything had been eaten up except the marathon bar, which was only half gone. And the car's underside was undamaged. This heavy American car with a low-hanging muffler and presumably with five full-grown men inside had wound up a stretch of torturously bumpy mountain road, apparently in total darkness, without a gouge or a dent or even a thick mud stain to show for it. The driver had either used astonishing care and precision, the investigators figured, or else he knew the road well enough to anticipate every rut. The family say only Madruga drove that car ever. And the family say Madruga, who disliked camping and hated the cold, did not know that road. None of the boys knew the road, as far as anybody could tell. Once, about eight years earlier, Bill Sterling had gone fishing with his father at a cabin not far away, but he had not enjoyed himself and stayed home the few times the Sterlings went back. 
Three years ago, Ware had hunted deer with friends in the Feather River country, but it was quite a way west of the area where the car was found, and his family says he was not keen on the forest either. With the exception of Matthias, who occasionally stayed out all night with friends, each of the lost men led mostly stay-at-home lives with such scheduled predictability that no one could fathom what or who might have taken them up that lonely road in the mountains. The Deserted Trailer A storm whistled in the day the car was found, dropping nine inches of snow on the upper mountain. The search teams nearly lost men themselves two days later as their snowcats struggled through the drifts. Nobody found anything, not so much as a shoe, until later in the spring thaw, when on June 4th, a small group of Sunday motorcyclists wandered into a deserted forest service trailer camp at the end of the road and inhaled a nauseating smell. It was Ted Ware. Stretched out on a bed inside the main 60-foot trailer, frozen to death. Eight sheets had been pulled over his body and tucked around his head. His leather shoes were off and missing. A table by the bed held his nickel ring with Ted engraved on it, his gold necklace, his wallet with cash still inside, and a gold Waltman watch, its crystal missing, which the family say had not belonged to any of the five men. Ware had been a tall, heavy-set fellow back in February, 5 feet 11, uh, 200 pounds. By the time his body was found, he had lost from 80 to 100 pounds. His feet were badly frostbitten. The growth of a, of a beard on his face showed that he had lived, apparently, in starving agony inside that trailer for anywhere from 8 to 13 weeks. He was 19.4 miles from the car, where, wearing a striped velour short and light, a shirt and lightweight green pants, had walked or run or been somehow taken in the moonlight through almost 20 miles of four- to six-foot snowdrifts to reach the locked trailer where he died. The trailer had been broken into through a window. No fire had been built, although matches were lying around, and there were paperback novels and wood furniture that would have burned easily. More than a dozen Z ration cans from an outside storage shed had been opened and emptied. One had been opened with an Army P-38 can opener, which only Madruga and Matthias, who had served in the Army, probably knew how to use. But no one had opened a locker in the same shed containing enough dehydrated Mexican dinners and fruit cocktails and assorted other meals to keep all five alive for a year. No one had touched the propane tank in another shed outside either. All they had to do was turn the gas on, says Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers, and they'd have had gas to that trailer and heat. Although the spring, the search for the boys had practically consumed Ayers. He had gone to Marysville High School with Ware and his brothers. Although he had not known them well, and there was something about the silent disappearance of five strong young men that haunted him like nothing he had ever investigated. Leads were drifting in from all parts of the country. The boys had been seen in Ontario. The boys had been seen in Tampa. The boys had been seen entering a movie theater in Sacramento accompanied by an older man. Ayers could punch holes in all of them. Skeptical but desperate, he consulted psychics. One told him the boys had been kidnapped to Arizona and Nevada. Another said the boys had been murdered in Oroville in a two-story red house, brick or stained wood with a gravel driveway and the number 4723 or 4753. For two solid days, Ayers drove every street in Oroville looking for that house. It did not exist. Before long, he could rattle off their names and vital statistics almost automatically. Theodore Earl Wire, brown eyes, curly brown hair, 
handsome, beer-bellied, friendly, in a trusting child's way. He waved at strangers and brooded for hours if they didn't wave back, got a good chuckle out of the phoning Bill Sterling and reading from newspaper items or oddball names from the telephone book, employed for a while as a janitor and a snack bar clerk but quit at the urging of his family, who thought Ware's slowness was causing problems. Jackie Charles Hewitt, 24, 5 foot 9, 160 pounds, slight droop to the head, slow to respond, a loving shadow to wear, who looked after Hewitt in a protective sort of way. Jack Anton Madruga, 5'11", 190 pounds, high school graduate, an army veteran, brown eyes, brown hair, heavy set, laid off in November from his job as a busboy for Sunsweet Growers. William Lee Sterling, 5 feet 10, 170 pounds, dark brown hair, blue eyes. Madruga's special friend, deeply religious, would spend hours at the library reading literature to help bring Jesus to patients in mental hospitals. Gary Dale Mathias, 5 foot 10, 170 pounds, brown hair, hazel eyes, 25, assistant in his stepfather's gardening business, army veteran with psychiatric discharge after drug problems that developed in Germany five years ago. By late spring, Ayers was dreaming about the boys at night. Once he woke in the darkness, arms outstretched, he had almost embraced all five. You do a lot of handshaking, Ayers said, and a lot of drinking. Then there was the man who saw lights on the road. Joseph Shones, 55, told police he drove his Volkswagen bug up that same road sometime after 5.30 that evening the boys disappeared. He said he was checking the snow line because he wanted to bring his wife and daughter up that weekend. His car got stuck in the snow just above the snow line, about 50 yards beyond the place where the mercury would have been. And as Shones was trying to free his car, he said he had a heart attack. Doctors later confirmed to investigators that Shone had indeed suffered a mild heart attack. Shones lay in the car with the engine on and the car heater going, he said. Sometime in the night, he heard what he described as whistling noises a little way down the road, and he got out of his car. What he saw looked like a group of men and a woman with a baby, he said, walking in the glare of the vehicle's headlights. He thought he heard them talking. Shones said he yelled for help, but the headlights went out, and the talking stopped. Shones got back into his car and lay down again, he said. Sometime later, maybe a couple of hours, he saw lights outside his car window. Flashlight beams, he said. Again, he called for help. The lights went out, and whoever was out there went away. Shone said he lay in the car until it ran out of gas, and then while it was still dark, he walked back eight miles to the lodge called Mountain House, where he had stopped for a drink before heading up the road. Just below his Volkswagen, in the place where he had heard the voices, he passed the Mercury Montego sitting empty in the middle of the road. The day after the wearer's body was discovered, searchers found the remains of Madruga and Sterling. They lay on opposite sides of the road of the trailer, 11.4 miles from the car. Madruga had been partially eaten by animals and dragged about 10 feet to a stream. He lay face up, his right hand curled around his watch. Sterling was in a wooded area, scattered over about 50 feet. There was nothing left of him but bones. Two days later, just off the same road, but much closer to the trailer, Jackie Hewitt's father found his son's backbone. (gasps) Ayers had tried to talk him out of joining the search, fearing something like this might happen, but Hewitt, whose first name is Jack, had insisted on going. There were a few other bones around, along with a Levi's and Ripple-soled get-their-shoes. An assistant sheriff from Plumas County found a skull the next day, about 100 yards downhill from the rest of the bones. The family dentist identified the teeth as those of Jackie Hewitt. Hewitt's remains had lain northeast of the trailer, like Sterling's and Madruga's. Northwest of the trailer, about a quarter mile away, searchers found three wool forest service blankets and a two-cell flashlight lying by the side of the road. The flashlight was slightly rusted and had been there and had been turned off. It was impossible to tell how long it had been there. They found no sign of Gary Mathias. 
His tennis shoes were inside the Forest Service trailer, which suggested to investigators that he might have taken them off to put on Ware's leather shoes, particularly since Ware had bigger feet and Matthias's feet might have swollen with frostbite. But that was pure conjuncture, which was all that they had. State mental institutions have received a description of Matthias, slender, dark hair, double vision without his glasses. He was not carrying his billfold when he left the house for the Chico basketball game, so he had no identification on him. And if he is still alive, he has been without the drugs he needs for the last four months. Matthias took his medication weekly, as he had for the last three years. Stelazine and Condigen, both used in the treatment of schizophrenia. His family says the illness appeared five years ago while he was in the army in Germany. Police records show he had, he had become violent on occasion, he was charged with assault twice, and there was a difficult period after his return from Germany when Matthias would fail to take his drugs and lapse into disoriented psycho- uh, psychosis that usually landed him in a Veterans Administration hospital. Went haywire is how Bob, his stepfather, put it. For the last two years, though, Matthias has been working steadily in his stepfather's business and was taking the medication so faithfully that a local doctor who knows Matthias well calls him one of our sterling success cases. He collected Army psychiatric disability pay, was enormously attached to his family, loved the basketball games he shared with the four other men, and listened to the Rolling Stones and Olivia Newton-John on the record player in the living room. Klopf says his stepson took his medicine the week he disappeared, But he and the doctor say Matthias had not gone haywire in two years. When I looked for all that time, I was up there where his glasses, said Klopf. I didn't think the bear would eat that, which apparently they think he might have been eaten by a bear. Mm -hmm. He's sitting at the dining room table. His voice is gruff. He is tired of reporters and tired of the pain and tired of not understanding what happened to the boy. Ida Klopf, across the table from him, says she has not turned on her television in weeks because she does not want to find out that way. She says she's going back up there on the weekend, back up to see if she can find something the searchers missed. There's no place to look, Ida, says Klopf. I'll find some place, Mrs. Klopf says, turning her face away. A thousand leads. Bizarre, says John Thompson, the special agent from the California Department of Justice, who has joined the Ayers on the investigation. And no explanations, and a thousand leads. Every day you've got a thousand leads. They learned that a Forest Service snowcat ran up the road to the trailer on February 23rd, leaving a packed path in the snow that the boys might have followed. They took on water a water witcher from the town up north called Paradise, who said that he had fixed it so that his divining rod would pick up traces of human minerals and then lead the searchers to a deserted cabin near the abandoned car. They found a gray cigarette lighter, the disposable plastic kind, about three-quarters of a mile northwest of the trailer. The family said none of the boys carried a lighter. They found the gold watch beside Ware's body. They discovered that Gary Mathias knew people in Forbes Town, which is about halfway between Chico and Yuba City, uh, on a road with a turnoff so easy to miss that anybody driving it late at night might have ended up north towards the mountains and lost. But none of it helped. The cabin found by the water witcher was empty. The cigarette lighter might have been dropped by a hiker. The watch might have belonged to the forest ranger in the trailer months earlier, and Matthias's friends in Forbes Town said they had not seen him for a year. And suppose they followed the snowcat's tracks. Suppose that was how Ware made it through the 20 miles of deep snow. But why? Why abandon a perfectly operable car and strike out into the forest at midnight? Why press on through 20 miles of snowdrifts and darkness to break into a locked, unheated trailer and die? Why drive all the way up there in the first place? And how, if someone chased them, why was the car undamaged? What were the whistling noises and the voices Shones heard on the road? It doesn't add up. 
Uh, there was some force that made them go up there, Jack Madruga's mother, Mabel, says firmly. They wouldn't have gone and fled off into the woods like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand on those five men, but we know it must have been. They seen something at the game at the parking lot, says Ted Weir's sister-in-law. They might have seen it and didn't even realize they seen it. I can't understand why Gary would be would be that scared, says Klopp. Even a fire, he says, all those paperbacks, and they didn't even build a lousy fire. I can't understand why they didn't do it unless they were afraid. But he cannot imagine what they were afraid of. Neither can the investigators. They can't prove there was foul play, but they can't explain it if there wasn't. They don't even know if Gary Mathias is dead. They think he is. They think his body probably lay on the snow until the spring thaw came and eased him down, deep inside some thick patch of mountain manzanita. It's mountain manzanita. I think it's just some sort of, like, I'll Google it. They're like shrubs. Oh, okay. Manzanita is a common name for many species of genus of Ostostrophilus. They're evergreen shrubs or small trees present in chaparral biome of the western North America. Damn. And what year did this happen again? 1978. Jeez. So I know that was a lot. Yeah, it was. That's crazy. Yeah. That's and what about the woman? The the woman with the baby. The woman with the baby, nobody knows anything about that. And some uh so on Reddit, people have all sorts of theories, right? But one person thinks that he um like one of the smaller dude in the group had long hair. Um and somebody suggested that like I mean that guy was having a heart attack and he was disoriented. That, like, he might have seen, like, the smaller guy holding something and thought it was a, a woman with a baby. Yeah, I'm like, what were they running from that they had to ditch the car? Right? Um, yeah, why were they up there in the first place? And there are people who, are, like, live in that area. So one of the theories, right, is that Gary was like, let's go see my friends in Forbestown. And that they missed the turn off to Forbestown but just kept going. But it's like they kept going like 50 miles past that. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of people are like they wouldn't have kept like maybe 10, 15 miles. But why would they have gone 50 miles? Like that couldn't be what happened. So, yeah. And then one person was like, well, it's that night, late at night and a bunch of people are in the car. Like maybe you don't notice that you have gone that far off or who knows. And then they're just like, but why would they get out of the car? Why would they get out of the car and just start walking? And somebody else was like, well, maybe if there was a person with a baby, like maybe they got out because they would have been helping the, thinking they were helping the lady with the baby. Like maybe they didn't do it because they were scared, but maybe they got like manipulated in some other way besides like being scared into doing whatever. So is there a theory out there that... I mean, I guess they don't really know what happened necessarily, that one who was nothing but bones by the end. But, I mean, is there a theory that that one guy, Matthias, had a like had a, had a break and, killed, and killed them all? That's a theory. And then who knows where he is? Right. Who knows what happened to him? Are there any recent updates or, like, what's the most recent thing? Um. Well, the Reddit article has people writing stuff as, like, recently is like in the last year yeah so here's some theories that are on wikipedia uh even knowing that four of the five men had died in the in the sierra investigators still could not completely explain 
what had led those what to led to those deaths. They still had found no explanation for why the men were there. Although they learned that Matthias had friends in a small town of Forbes town, police believed it was possible that in an attempt to visit them on the way back home, the men may have taken a wrong turn near Oroville that put them on the mountain road. For whatever reason, the men had left the Montego. They had, instead of going back down the road where they had passed a lodge that Shones later returned to, continued along the road in the direction they were originally going. Purposeful motion like that is not consistent with circular patterns traveled by those who genuinely believe themselves to be lost. The day before the men went missing, a Forest Service snowcat had gone along the road in that direction to clear snow off the trailer roof so that it could not collapse. It's possible police believe that the group had decided to follow the tracks it left through snow drifts, uh, four to six feet high, to wherever they led in the belief that shelter wouldn't be not too far away. Madruga and Sterling probably succumbed to hypothermia midway along the, the long walk to the trailer. Mm. It's assumed that once they found the trailer, the other three broke the window to enter. Since it was locked, they may have believed it was private property and may have feared arrest for theft if they used anything else they found there. After Ware died or the others believed he had, they perhaps chose to attempt to return to civilization by different routes over land on foot. Because some people say they think that the reason that they didn't burn stuff or eat stuff is because they were slow and thought like they were going to get in they trouble. would get in trouble. Mm. Yeah. So they probably died like early ish on. Well, the one found, guy, except they for the said one guy who'd been starved. alive for eight to 13 weeks. Yeah. Before he like he and he had lost like 80 to 100 pounds in he that time froze to death before right? he froze to death. Correct. So then I'm like, so when did the others leave? I don't and know. Decide to start out on their own. It was hard to tell because of, you know, just, the one guy was just bones and then yeah. the other guy had been, like, partially eaten. Yeah. So it was like, how long have they been out here? Because they also were frozen for some time. Oof. That's rough. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And like I said, they on Reddit, they call this the American Ditlock Pass. Makes sense, yeah. Because they're like, why did, like, why we understand these? how these people died, but we don't understand Their what led to the circumstances, right, to this is how they died. Yeah, because then they, they passed that lodge on their way up there. They could have just turned around and gone and back. And gone back. And the car was fine. But someone, yeah, like they said the way, and multiple places said this, like, the way people walk around when they're lost, they tend to walk in circular patterns, but they went straight for this trailer, almost like they knew where it was, mm -hmm. but they think it's just because they were following the tracks of the, the snow plow where they were like, oh, okay, well, this must go somewhere. Yeah. Oof. 20 miles. In the freaking snow. Yeah. God, it's a wonder that more than just two of them didn't just die from that. Yeah. But yeah, and then that other guy, they never, nobody knows what happened to him. He was never found. The fifth guy, <sighs> Matthias. He could still be out there somewhere. He could still be out there somewhere. Maybe he's Bigfoot. <gasps> I don't know. We just uncovered some real truth. <laughs> Hashtag truth. That was crazy. Yeah. it was, And it's a lot. But yeah, cause it's like, all. That is a whole lot. I, feel I was like, like I got to so... tell you everything because there's a lot, but it's all like fascinating. <sighs> but it's a, it's a lot. I know. And I worked all day today. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Primark. My brain is like, ugh. If you guys want a sticker, you should. 
<laughs> nice segue. Review us on iTunes or Facebook and then send us a screenshot. And yes. with iTunes, I'd like to clarify, it does take a few days for them to post. So if you want to take your screenshot when you write it, um, don't freak out if it doesn't show up right away because that's a, a thing. It'll take a couple of days. But write us a review on iTunes or Facebook and screenshot it and send it to us either in our DMs or you can email it to us directly at deadtimestories, all one word with a Z, at gmail.com. And give us your address and we'll send you a sticker. We sent out our first batch today. We did. And I put them in the mail on my lunch break. Yeah. So those of us who, those of you who DM'd us, uh, keep an eye out. You'll be getting those stickers. You'll be getting them stickers. Is, is, is. By the time you hear this, it'll be a few days from now and you might even have them already. But who knows? Who knows? Oh, that would that's true. They might have them already. Yeah. That's very true. Let us You're know welcome. when you get them. Post them. Post pictures. Tag us. Yes, please. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Hashtag dead time stories. Hashtag Grumblethorpe. Hashtag ghost dick. Hashtag not today snakin. Yes. That's just the most recent one. Them. Hashtag whatever you like that you're picking up on. Right? But like tag us. Hashtag Dead Time Stories. stories. All one word with a Z. Yes. And uh, hopefully we'll have some more big things coming up yeah. in the docket for you guys. So thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks for listening to our stories. Leave us a review. Uh, subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your family. And just like, hey, say hey to us. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to hear your personal ghost stories and stories that you want to hear about. And we'd love to see your dick dressed up as a ghost. Um, only if it's dressed up as a ghost. Only if it's dressed up as a ghost. Cannot recommend okay, that Kleenex, enough. preferably googly eyes. Please, but we'll, like, we'll take sharpie eyes. Sharpie eyes. Sharpie eyes. Give fine. a little mouth. Give a sharpie smile. But um, but yeah, I think we might have to bring on a ghost dick onto the podcast soon. Yeah, you mentioned that. I think we might have to bring him on. We'll see what happens. We'll see. He always shows up when you least expect it. When you let your guard down. I know. So we got to wait till our listeners let their guard down. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I'm Sarah. I'm Stephanie. And this, and this has is been Dead Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. <laughs>